Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tuminini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, we are taking a break from talking about the New York theater community and focusing specifically on the thriving theater scene in Chicago. Earlier this month, I had the pleasure to speak with Mark Larson, whose book Ensemble, an Oral History of Chicago Theater, is available now. In this 650-page tome, Larson chronicles the rise of the Second City's theater community, starting with, well, Second City and the Compass Players in the 1950s and 60s, and via over 300 interviews tells the story of Chicago's gritty climb to theatrical prominence. In writing the book, Larson spoke to a wide breadth of figures associated with the Windy City theater community. Some of those names are familiar and some aren't, but the truism that they all came back to was that in Chicago, it was about the work first and about the community close behind. The book features interviews with Laurie Metcalf, Tracy Letts, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, William H. Macy, Alan Arkin, Gary Sinise, Michael Shannon, and many, many more. The conversation that I had with Mark was fascinating, and as someone who spent my first year out of college living in Chicago, almost made me wish that I, like one of Larson's interviewees whom we discuss, never left the city. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark Larson. What I wanted to start with is, I think a lot of theater fans outside of Chicago don't necessarily understand what makes the Chicago theater scene unique and special. I think a lot of theater fans think of it as a place that might have out of town tryouts for shows or sit down productions of Broadway, of Broadway shows, but don't necessarily understand anything beyond that. So for the uninitiated, how would you describe what the Chicago theater scene is, how it's developed over the past half century, and, and what makes it stand out for maybe the, community, the, the theater communities outside of New York other than Chicago? That's a great question. Um, I think people in the Chicago theater community might bristle at the idea that it's a tryout town. Um, it's It's often thought of that way. And I think it serves, uh, a per- but it's, it's often served as a, uh, a, a tryout town. And I think that's happening more and more, but it's also a place that people can feel free to take enormous risks, I think. And that's always been part of the, uh, history here, which I think is a way of creating great works. I think it was David Cromer was quoting Gary Griffin. They were both on a panel in New York and somebody asked the same question that you had asked. And Gary said, well, in, in Chicago, it's a um, nonprofit model, you know, and hmm. when it's a nonprofit model, you can take these risks. Um, if, if you look at, for example, David Rabe came to Chicago and he worked on and opened Good for Otto, which later opened to New York at a small storefront theater that seated uh, 40 people called The Gift. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real testament to the sense that, you know what, I want to try something and Chicago is a great place to do it. There's all sorts of opportunities here too, for people to perform and work with people that they might not otherwise get a chance to work with. Um, there's not a sense of like, there's a hierarchy. I'm in a storefront now and someday, someday I'm going to make it to the good or someday I'm going to make it to New York. People sort of go between those. Uh, I can think of one actor in particular who 
we'll do a storefront show and then go on and do August Osage County and Steppenwolf, go to New York, get a Tony, come back, do another storefront. You, see, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So there, there is that kind of switching around. I think, I think there's a, there's a sense that, you know, we're all in this together here and there's a sense that we're, we're building this theater community together and we're all a part of it. We all play a role in it. And I think that gives great strength to the work itself. Then you see what I mean? Absolutely. And great, like I say, great opportunity for artists. Yeah. And I think that plays in really well with how you named the book uh, ensemble. Uh, That's very much something that I consider part of the Chicago theater. Maybe, maybe because of how Steppenwolf brands its company as Ensemble, but there is a very communal banded together team mentality. When you think of, of everything that comes out of Chicago, I think that's seen whenever you see a show that's transferred from Steppenwolf or Goodman or, or any of the other theaters in Chicago that comes to New York, they generally bring most of the cast and the director with it. So it's, it's not like this is a place to try something new and then abandon it uh, to kind of bring in different names in New York. So it, there has that feel of it being, I think family might be an overused word, but a, a community that is reverent of what they do together. That's really a great way to put it. That, that is a very powerful uh, feeling here. And they're very proud of it. It's not to say they don't have their problems and their arguments sure. and you know their competitions, but there is a great pride in that ethos, and it goes way back. Yeah, and you so talking about this book, you interviewed hundreds uh, of of people, including some fantastic theater names. You mentioned David Cromer, uh, as well as you know Tracy Letts and Laurie Metcalf and William H Macy and Michael Shannon, who's on Broadway right now. Um, as you were going through this, were you able to find something that maybe was the nugget of how that this community not only started putting shows on, but really kind of that idea of an ensemble of the, th- the, the theater community in Chicago, where that started, where it got its impetus, or was that just always there? I think in a sense it was always there, but... Um... That's evading the question in a way, though, too. It's what's what's really interesting is it's I think it's part of the ethos of this area, for one thing. Um, But there's there's several places you could trace it back to, too. Um, If you go back to 1953 at the beginning of the book with um, Playwrights Theater Club, this is Paul Sills and Viola Spolin, uh, you know, generated kind of company where it's all about the group. It's all about the community. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think their influence was, you know, is, is still felt today. I just recently um, emceed an event that celebrated Paul Sills and Viola Spolin for that very reason. I think their fingerprints on, are on everything. And out of that, I think, is that sense of community, of working for the whole. That's how improvisation works best, too. Yeah, right? that's true. Where... It, you know, where it's the whole, if if I can make the other person look good, that's my job. And his or her job is to make me look good. You know, we're all working on this together. It's not about how do I stand out. So that I think that ethos can be traced pretty far back. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, the workmanlike philosophy that I think a lot of people associate with Chicago just in general, the city with broad shoulders and those kind of things, I think that 
transfers over to the theatrical community as well as because when you think of Chicago, you think of the gritty, the hardworking, the dedicated actor. You don't necessarily think of a bunch of glitzy and glamorous uh, actors or productions. You think of things that are hard hitting, are raw and and are emotionally volatile, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that that also probably translates from the city itself as much as the artists who occupy that community. The, you use the word work, and I hear that a lot. Um, it's it's about the work is kind of a, a phrase you hear here in various different forms. Um, I asked Lori Metcalf about did did Steppenwolf see themselves as an ensemble from the beginning, and she goes, "I think so." We never really used the word, but I think so. And then she said, "I said so." It was all about the group. Then she goes, "It's it was all about the work." And, you know, I've heard so many variations on that. How do we make this work the best it can be rather than how do I make this a showcase for me? Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Laurie Metcalf and uh, all of the hundreds of people that, that you spoke to. Was there anything from somebody either well-known like Laurie Metcalf or somebody who nobody's ever heard of outside of maybe their family um, that stuck out to you as being emblematic <laughs> of what this community is? Yeah, there's so many. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And, 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 oh, no, I mean, <laughs> there, there's just a lot to draw on. There, here's, let me, let me preface my, my, um, my response. Okay. And sure. then give you the response. <laughs> the preface would be there's a, over those 320 or however many interviews I did, there is a consistency about that, you know, uh, a, a sense that I'm proud that I'm from Chicago. I'm proud to, you know, participate in the whole. Um, I'm very committed to the work itself. We feel like we're original. You know, it's, I think there's a great pride that comes out and every, everybody expresses it in their own way, but it was very consistent. Um, Alan Arkin said something that was very emblematic and I don't know if I could find it. Um, you know, he was here in six, 1960, wow. in that first years of um, uh, Second City. Nobody knew who the hell he was. And he came here. He he said something to the... I said, uh, when you look back on your time in Chicago, how do you feel about it? And he goes, you know, sometimes I wonder if I would have been smarter to stay. Um, it's, I, there was a sense of family. There was a sense of us against the world that was very powerful there that I've looked for through my whole career and only found it in a half a dozen other places over his decades of work. Um, I think that's really a powerful statement, you know, um, he, you know, he's been looking for it ever since there's, um, I asked him about Russians are coming, which is his first film. And he goes, well, in that Norman Jewison, came closest to what we were looking for in terms of what I was looking for in terms of working as a community that we're all working on this one thing. And that reminded me a lot of my time in Chicago. Yeah. That's uh that's interesting to hear that someone who as accomplished and celebrated as he is, is still thinking that it might've been better to not do any of the things he's done since leaving Chicago and just have stayed there. That's really fascinating. Um, was was there anybody who you talked to that um, had a feeling that 
well, I don't want to, I don't want to phrase it as a competition necessarily to, to anything else, but obviously you talk to people who are not just folks that have gone on to fame and acclaim outside of Chicago, but you talked with people who are the, the working lifeblood of Chicago theater on a day-to-day basis over the past, however many decades. You mentioned second city, not only the, the improv troupe, but the, the nickname for the city itself. Is there a sense that there's a pride in the work that they're doing, but that it's not recognized as much as it should be since New York is the center of, of American theater and LA is the, the, the center of American film. And yet Chicago does a little bit of both and is often forgot or overlooked, or is that something that maybe they embrace a little bit? Uh, that's a great, that's a great question. And I, I think it's both of those. It's a and B. I, I think to a certain extent, there is sort of an embracing of it. That's what that's what Bernie Sollins and uh, uh, Paul Sills did when they named Second City Second City. It's like hmm. AJ Levy, and you're going to call us the Second City in New Yorker. Well, fuck you. We're, that's what we're going to call ourselves. We're <laughs> going to embrace that. And that I think that ethos survives. You know what I mean? I yeah. do think there's a there's a sense of we're doing fantastic work here. Not everybody knows it, you know, um, and so. There is a romanticism. That's what I'm looking for. There's a romanticism yeah, to that notion. But at the same time, I do think it's like, gee, I'd really like to get that movie, you know, <laughs> um, or, or I'd like to take this to New York, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I, of course, of course that's there. But I don't, you know, the sense I got was it's not agony to them, you know? I, I won't name this person, if you'll forgive me, because I, I don't have her permission to sure. to say this. It's not in the book. But um, I talked to a, a young woman who went off at an early age to do um, a, a sitcom, uh, which she's still doing. And, you know, so it had marked success with that. But one of the things she said was when she got to L.A., that she was surprised by how, you know, being used to the Chicago scene, she was surprised by how desperate people were to get apart. You know, it was so, there was a desperation to it. And she was like, well, I'll, I'll go in and see what happens, you know, and then I'll check out the mall with my mom. <laughs> you know, there was that kind of feel to it. And I think there is something about that. You know, it's, there's not a desperation, but there is an incredible passion to do incredible work that 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 commitment's very real i i like i said earlier what i always think of when i think of chicago theater is is the i think the passion's the right word and it comes through in the plays that we see come out of chicago the ones that originated there not necessarily the ones that you know drop in for a for a tryout but the ones that originated there from chicago artists chicago playwrights chicago directors chicago actors that they there is a rawness and a passion and an a, and a heightened emotion and and vitality behind them where where does that come from do you think in all of the 300 plus interviews that you did where does that generate from Gosh, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint it. I mean, it's it's like I, I I've always thought of the, of Chicago as a kind of ecology and ecological area where all the parts play a role in making this what it is. You know what I mean? Um, so it's it's hard to take it back to one root thing. Obviously, Steppenwolf I think could be named as something 
that gave that gave Chicago that sense of grittiness. They certainly put that grittiness on the map. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, and a lot of it came from their passion um, and their commitment to being very real. You know, um, in in the section on the early early days of, of Steppenwolf, you'll you'll read that they. They loved the fact that they were up in Highland Park, which is a suburb, in a church basement that seated about 39 people. And the great value of that was they were able to completely do it just to entertain them, themselves and their friends. And in that opportunity, they were able to get really good until they were able to then go into the city. You know what I mean? And I think in that isolation, they even kind of created that gritty ethos that gritty aesthetic of it. You know what I mean? So it comes from that to a certain degree. But I think even before that, well, no, it was about the same time. Remains Theater, you know, Bill Peter, William Peterson, um, Gary Cole, who I was just watching on uh, West Wing last night. Um, The people that came out of the Amy Morton, um, who's in uh, Steppenwolf now, um, they were doing that too in a tiny little space behind a bar, you know, the remains theater, they didn't last, but they just threw themselves into whatever it is they were doing, you know? And I think they were sparked in part by Steppenwolf, you know? Yeah. Um, Peterson tells the story in there about, you know, he got Gary Cole to come up to Chicago and they were just sort of going around trying to find out where's, where are people doing work? And they heard about, Glass Menagerie in Los in Los Angeles in Highland Park, and went up and saw Lori for the first time do Glass Menagerie, and they were just knocked out by it. So I think that then in that moment, that kind of ethos becomes or that kind of aesthetic becomes part of Remains DNA. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And then that gets passed on to others too. Yeah. Well, you when talking about all of these different people that have gone through Chicago and all the people that you were able to speak to when you got the word that there was one person who had agreed to talk to you about this was, was, was there like a white whale, I guess, to, to who you were most excited to talk to for this book? Ah, that's a great, that's great. White whale. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there wasn't, um, I, I kind of grew up with the, uh, the studs turkle thing that everybody has a story <laughs> that was going to be you know one of I mean? my that was going to be one of my questions oh, oh, too that, i was going to ask about studs so yeah that's perfect um yeah that that notion that everybody has a story so as you read his books and you listen to his his uh, radio show uh, he's talking to a king one day and, and then the very next day he's talking to some guy he met you know yeah. and, and was interested in and so i i saw I had a very egalitarian sense of all of that. And I also had a, a strong commitment to, this is not going to be about the famous. This is going to be about the community because they're all part of the community. You know what I mean? And I know that the famous helps sell the book and they're in there and they are part of the ecology too, but it's not like I was chasing a white whale. I, I hadn't even thought of it in that, that term, but, no. Uh, yeah, I would love to have gotten Elaine May, but she's, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> well known for not doing yeah. interviews. Notoriously, you know? yeah, famous Notor- for not doing yeah. things like this. 
Yeah, I, I talked to Sam Wallen, and he said, well, who do you want that you haven't got yet? And I said, well, I'd love to talk to Elaine Main. He goes, forget it. <laughs> Just forget <laughs> it. I, I tried. And there's even something in his book about her notoriously not doing them. If there was a white whale, it'd be Elaine May, I guess. Yeah. But I, I didn't. I didn't chase her down. Yeah. I didn't torment her. That's probably fair. Um, but it is interesting that you you mentioned Studs Terkel, who um, obviously has a theatrical connection with with the musical version of Working, but he is a Chicago icon who did something. Um, you know, fairly similar to to what you did with oral histories and things like that. Was there a, an obvious uh, impetus from that? Obviously, you come from an academic background, um, and 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 those kind of things. But were you thinking of Studs Terkel when when you f- did your first oral history type thing? Yeah, yeah, I was very influenced by him. In fact, I dedicated the book in part to him. It it oh, says wow. something about for the gift of his character. Um, and I thank two other people in the same vein, uh, a huge influence on me. Um, he interviewed me a couple times too. Oh, wow. And to have had that experience of sitting beside him for almost three hours twice was a real learning experience. And I re- once sat in on an interview of his at uh, WFMT when he was doing it live and just watched him work. I, uh, you know, I, I read his books. I ate them up. I was very influenced by that. And also by him as a human being, you know, that sense that everybody has an interesting story to tell. You just get out of the way and let them tell it. Um, <laughs> I like that, that. I mean, that per, that permeates my my book. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. Um, to, to wrap this up, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the process of anything. Honestly, that's kind of one of the things that I love the most, but um, I'm fascinated by the process of theater, which you obviously detail quite a bit in the book, but I'm also fascinated by the process of the book itself. When you have, like you said, 320 plus um, interviews, I I imagine that there's a lot of material that didn't make it. When you try to wrap your head around what this project is, did you have a blueprint or what you wanted to have the finished product look like how did you go about compiling editing compressing putting together what was the philosophy in that did you have a a narrative through line that you wanted to follow i mean obviously it's done chronologically but was there any other larger points you were trying to do just what was the what was the the you know the methodology in in putting this whole project together the I, I like you. I am fascinated by process, and so I was really trying to tune into the idea of how how did Steppenwolf even freaking happen? You know, how, <laughs> how did it go from these kids? I mean, they were kids to the fact that to the point where they're internationally well known and built their own building and are about to add to it. You know, how does that happen? That was kind of the guiding light for me. How the hell did this happen? (laughs) So not just Steppenwolf, but the whole theater community. Because before 1953, there was almost nothing, you know? So if there was any kind of guiding question, as simple as it is, is how did this happen? Um, In terms of putting it together, though, too, it really was, I think in the spirit of theater community and the theater companies and the actors here, it, it really was a 
we make the road by walking kind of thing. You know, I, I would go from interview to interview just to see what the material was, you know, yeah. and then that would lead me to three more and that would lead me to six more. Um, so uh, I was starting to piece it together that way. And then I, I sort of had all this material that I didn't know quite what to do with. So figuring out the outline of it obviously had to come later. And I, I just played with a lot of different ways. I, I tried it thematically at one point. Um, chronology was hard to work out, but I think I got it worked out. At least I hope <laughs> I, I did. It, and it's not just as simple as, it's not like one thing follows another. It's this right. thing happens, it sparks these 12 other things. Meanwhile, Steppenwolf continues to evolve. You'd be constantly interrupting yourself in the narrative. Yeah. You know, so I found a, a way to do that, but that was, that was kind of tricky um, in part because there's just so many elements, there's so much going on here. And I was trying to figure out how they all, how they all infect each other, how they all inspire mm -hmm. each other. You know, I was looking for that too. Yeah. It, this is a, obviously a, um, like I said, a massive project. The book is almost 650 pages just in the crux, not even the acknowledgements and the notes and all of those things. Obviously I, I imagine that you would hope that people read from cover to cover, but is this something where you can take individual interviews out and read them on their own and still get a sense of what the, the entire oeuvre of the piece is? The intention was that it could be read uh, either front to back or uh, different pieces at a time. Yeah. So um, you, you, if what you're really interested in at any given moment is Steppenwolf, you can go to the Steppenwolf sections. And my publisher and I decided that's the way we would like to, to do it so that people are re-identified, you know, if if you if you haven't yeah, read about yeah, them in a while, we re-identify them exactly for that reason, so that you could jump in and, and know who they are. Um, so they they are meant to be standalone. And as I wrote each section, each chapter, I really was thinking of a little essay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That that comes to a conclusion, and or, or a story that sort of comes to a conclusion, or at least a temporary conclusion. Is there, if if someone was going to pick up this book and they had 20 minutes to to read and they didn't have time to read the whole thing, is there one essay that you would point them to to start off with? Mm, that's a great, um, it depends on what they're looking for, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to give you a couple of possibilities. <laughs> um, <laughs> One that comes to mind, although as, as the author, I'd rather you didn't do this, but um, is the last chapter. It's the it's a chapter about should I go or should I stay, and I think you get a sense of the place there. Um, I, when I was trying to work out the ending, I had two or three endings, and it finally ended up with this one. And I, I tried to, I thought, my God, this is such a big work. It's almost like a symphony. I, I don't mean to be hmm. grandiose about no, that, no, but I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's large. And so how do you end the symphony and you bring back a lot of the themes, you know? And so the last, the last chapter does do that. At least that was my intention. So it, 
it might be a good place to start, ironically. <laughs> you, you go back to uh, Ed Asner's voice, who's one of the first voices in the thing, Alan Arkin again, and people deciding, well, do I stay or do I go? That, and, and I think that gives you a sense of, of the theater itself. I mean, the uh, community itself. I also, I do love the Steppenwolf chapters. I think there's something, there's an contagious enthusiasm there. Um, just these kids are so scrappy and hungry for this. It's, it's just fun to read to me. Um, and it was fun to, to spend time with them talking about it. Uh, the practical theater company, it's, it's sort of a standalone, but that's where Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall and those folks came from. And you get a, you get to learn about them coming together and meeting at Northwestern University and deciding we want to do our work our way. And then practically in a blink of eye, an eye, they end up on SNL. And then their, their lives took off, you know. And I think that sort of gives a sense of that you know, we're just going to do what we want to do <laughs> feeling, you know? <laughs> and that's very much the, the, the modus operandi of, of Chicago theater, at least from an outsider's perspective is we're going to do it. We're going to do what we want to do. And if it works great. And if it doesn't, we'll try something else until we get it right. Yes. And you know what? That, that's a great point. I would add to that, that the audience here is acclimated to that notion too. Like, I think there's this attitude among audience that, we love you. What you just did is pure shit. Let's see what you're going to do next. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I hated perfect. that show. Let's see what you're going to do next. So there is that sense that it's not just the community, the theater artist community, but there's the audience as part of this too. Yeah, I love that. Well, I'll end it on this question. Um, since you have been so invested in the Chicago theater community, and even though you have some roots uh, as a an artist in it decades ago, for the most part um, in your adult life, it's been as an audience member. Is there a single production in your theater-going history in Chicago that you can point out as your favorite experience? Maybe not the best work itself, but your favorite experience of seeing Chicago-based theater? Uh, I'm pausing because I don't want to just... I don't want to go to most recent things because yeah, they're yeah, the ones that course. come directly to mind. There is, you know, in terms of seminal works, there's there was a production that I two here's two uh, production I saw at Wisdom Bridge, which Bob Falls, who now has been running the Goodman forever, um, he, he was in charge of uh, Wisdom Bridge when he was just a kid, and he did this gargantuan production of um, Hamlet with Aidan Quinn as Hamlet and Del oh, Close, who was, he is kind of an uh, improvisational um, guru uh, was in it. Byrne Piven was in it. Uh, Deanna Dunnigan, who got the Tony for August Osage County was in it. And it was so inventive and is so raw. And in this tiny little space that used to be a karate uh, karate <laughs> school on the second floor on, on Howard street and people to this day, literally to this day, still talk about that production because it was so interesting and I could see images of it in my mind. Um, and then the other one too, is just a, it's a crazy organic theater company that 
um, was run by Stuart Gordon. And out of that, we get like uh, uh, Joe Mantegna and, and others. Uh, Andre DeShields, who just got the Tony, oh, yeah. came out of that company. And they would do this crazy stuff in this little space. And they did a show called Warp in the 70s. That was a science fiction thing that had three parts to it. <laughs> and you go to the different parts. And that was one of, that was probably our first transfer to New York. Um, it had been in this tiny little space and they would use like a corkscrew and that was supposed to be a ray gun. I mean, that was part of the charm <laughs> of it. And then they moved it to, I think it was the ambassador. <laughs> it just died. <laughs> it, I mean, it just wasn't meant for there. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I think it was there all of six days. But but then we sent you Greece after that. But <laughs> Thanks um, so much. Yeah, right. Yes. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> well, that's another fun story, though. The Grease story is in there, too. I point to you to that. Just, it's just so rambunctious. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, those two productions, I have visual memories of. And I was just a kid then. You know, and when I started researching the book and then talking to the people who were in those shows and I created those shows, the mental images that came back were strikingly vivid to me. I was surprised. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. And you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have information for ensemble and oral history of Chicago theater in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com. Tell Me More is produced and edited by me. Special thanks to Mark Larson, Julia Borchitz, and the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening. And remember, Chicago is my kind of town. Chicago is my kind of people, too. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more.